Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stonecatchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. We're continuing our study of the Come, Follow Me curriculum, and this week I'm super excited because we are jumping into a new book, The Gospel of John. And one reason I'm so excited about getting into John after spending some time in Luke and Matthew in the last two weeks is that almost 90% of what is in John is unique to that gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke can sometimes feel pretty repetitive, and that's because they do repeat a lot of the same stories. Each of them have their own unique events or things recorded within them, but John is very unique, has a different feel, and I just really like some of the things that it contains, including this very first chapter. Today we're going to be talking about the first chapter of John, but before we jump into John chapter 1, verse 1, it's really interesting that at the end of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John actually states his entire purpose for writing this gospel. Let's take a look at that first because it will really frame how we understand everything else that John writes. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Jesus did a lot of things that aren't recorded in the book of John. Remember, this is right at the end of his gospel. Verse 31, But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So right there in verse 31, John states his entire purpose for writing this book. These are written, why? That ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Anointed One, that Jesus is the Messiah. But that's not all. He says, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So John's purpose is twofold in writing this gospel. One, that we'll believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One. And two, that because we believe in that, we can have life through his name. And John actually addresses that idea of life or light in his first chapter. So let's go back to the beginning of John's gospel, starting with John chapter 1, verse 1, because even that first verse is just packed with meaning. All right, John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, and I'm going to stop right there, because even these first three words are reminiscent of the very beginning of the Bible. John is setting the stage here and saying, in the beginning, at the time of creation, or even before creation. This is really getting at some time in the eternal past. So John is taking us way back to before time began, essentially. And this is what he says. In the beginning was the Word. That's a capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the word that's used in the original Greek version is logos. It's actually a very common word in Greek. If we look it up in Strong's Concordance, and I'll show that on the screen for you for those watching on YouTube, we can see that it's often translated just as words or sayings, and that its essential meaning is anything that's speech or utterance. So the word logos is a very common word, and we even have some examples of that in the New Testament. If we turn really quick to Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, there's a great example there. This verse says, But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. The word in that verse that was translated from the Greek word logos is communication. That's the same word that John is using in John chapter 1 as a title of Jesus. And I'll give you one more example in the New Testament. If you look at Matthew chapter 7 verse 24, 
That verse says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the word in that verse that was translated from the Greek word logos is sayings. So the Greek word logos is a very common word that, as we mentioned already, really just means some sort of communication, saying, speech, utterance, something like that. However, it is also often used to denote special communication from God to a called prophet. And in the Septuagint, a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, that word logos is used a lot, but there's a couple of very interesting spots that I want to point out. One is in Exodus chapter 34, verse 28. And you'll recognize what's going on here as soon as we start reading it. It says, And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. I'm sure you can guess which word in that verse came from the Greek word logos. He wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant. So we're talking about the words that Moses received and were written as the Ten Commandments. Of course, in this instance and the ones we noted previously, the W in word is lowercase. This is the very common usage of the Greek word logos. And we won't turn to each of these next references, but it's interesting that towards the end of the Hebrew Bible, where we're going through all the different books by the prophets, within the first few verses of almost each book, this Greek word logos is used in this way. As an example, in Hosea chapter 1 verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord that came unto me, Hosea. And there's a very similar beginning to many of the prophets' books in the Hebrew Bible, including Joel, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All of these books begin with some sort of statement that the words of the Lord came unto these prophets. And words in each of these verses comes from that Greek word logos, the exact same word that's used in the original Greek text for the book of John, where he's describing Jesus Christ. And all of this background can help us understand why John may have chosen this word as a title of Jesus Christ, even though logos is a very common word. And to me, there are at least two reasons why John picked logos as a title for Jesus Christ. The first is John views Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of all of those words from the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. He views their prophecies, their words, their logos, to use the Greek word, as pointing towards Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, the capital W word, is the fulfillment of the lowercase w words uttered by prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Another potential reason that I see is that John views the life and teachings of Jesus Christ as the ultimate word, the ultimate scripture that we should be patterning our lives after. If we think about what scriptures, what the words of prophets are used for, it's to help guide us in the ways that we can come closer to our heavenly parents, to help us know how we can conduct our lives in a way that would be pleasing to our heavenly parents and help us to return to them. And while we have lots of lowercase words from prophets, John is telling us that Jesus Christ is the capital W word that we should be studying and patterning our lives after. It's interesting to think about as a part of this second reason John may have used the word logos, all of the quote unquote updates that Jesus made to the law or the teachings during the Sermon on the Mount. If we look at Matthew chapter five, there are several times in this chapter where Jesus says something to the effect of, ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt whatever. 
And then he'll follow that up with, but I say unto you, and then he will give a new law or a higher law or a different law. So in this way, Jesus Christ is not only fulfilling those lowercase words of the prophets recorded in the Hebrew Bible, but he's giving updated words or teachings to his followers at that time. So Jesus's teachings are the capital W word when compared to the teachings and prophecies of previous prophets. And one last reason that I'll mention, and if you can think of any others, I would love to know in the comments or hit me up on Instagram if you're listening on the podcast, is that I think it's very common for us to think of the children of Israel in Jesus's time as very much relying upon the law or upon the logos or words of the prophets as recorded in the Hebrew Bible to bring them closer to God, really to bring them salvation. They relied on the scriptures, the laws, and the relating traditions and teachings to essentially bring them salvation. What John is telling us by indicating that Jesus Christ is the capital W word is that he is actually what will save us. Jesus will save us rather than these lowercase words of previous prophets. It doesn't mean that everything in here is of no value and we should ignore it. These are of immense value and they can help us in our quest to become more Christ-like. But I think the message here is that these things will not save us. The capital W word will. We need to rely on Jesus to bring us salvation rather than words recorded by prophets. In those and likely many other ways, Jesus is the capital W word, while all of those other things we talked about are the lowercase w word. Now, you might think we're done talking about the word word, but we're not quite done yet. I can't help but think about how in the Book of Mormon, in Lehi's dream, the rod of iron that he sees represents the word of God. I know a popular interpretation of that symbolism is that the iron rod represents the scriptures or the lowercase words of God. But in light of John chapter one, verse one, and the way he uses the Greek word logos as a title for Jesus Christ, I really view the iron rod as our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the healer. Can the scriptures help us come to know him better? Absolutely. But if I think about what I want to hang on to, what I rely on every single day, it's the personal relationship that I have with Jesus Christ, not necessarily the words that others have spoken about them. As good as they may be, what we should rely on, what our foundation should be, what our rock should be, is Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. And I was very glad to hear Elder David A. Bednar bring this up in a general conference address in April 2022. He said this about the rod of iron. Let me suggest that holding fast to the word of God entails, one, remembering, honoring, and strengthening the personal connection we have with the Savior and his Father through the covenants and ordinances of the restored gospel. In other words, relying on that capital W word, and two, prayerfully, earnestly, and consistently using the Holy Scriptures and the teachings of living prophets and apostles as sure sources of revealed truth. So he gives both possible interpretations there. For me personally, I really view the Word of God, the iron rod that I want to rely on as my guide day in, day out for my entire life as the life of Jesus Christ, his teachings, his example, his love, his mercy. That is my rod of iron. And to me, that approach makes sense with what we read in Helam in chapter 5, verse 12. And I promise after this one, we'll get back to John because we've only read one verse in John so far and we're jumping all over the place. 
But Helaman 5 verse 12 is worth mentioning here. It says, And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe, because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. Jesus Christ is that sure foundation. We come to know him using things like the scriptures, but ultimately our foundation must be upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our foundation. He's our rod of iron. He is the capital W word. That, at least in part, is what I think John is getting at when he calls Jesus Christ the word. All right, back to John. Verse 2 simply says, the same was in the beginning with God. So, John is emphasizing the fact that Jesus Christ was pre-existent, was God before this world was even created, which makes sense with what we believe in that Jesus Christ was actually the creator of this planet. He existed as a God before this earth was even created. And John even references this idea a few other times in his gospel. If we go back to John chapter 1 verse 3, there's some more beautiful things taught here. It says, All things were made by him, the word, and without him was not anything made that was made. I can't help but circle and emphasize the word all. And I think John has the same idea because he basically says the same thing twice. All things were made by him. And just in case we misunderstood that word all, he gives it to us a different way. And without him was not anything made that was made. That's pretty clear. The word created everything. There was nothing that was created that he did not create. I'm reminded of a Richard Rohr quote from the book Universal Christ, which if you haven't picked up that book and read it or listened to it on Audible, I highly recommend it. I'll put a link down below or in the show notes. It's a fantastic book about Jesus Christ. I love it. In that book, he says this, a mature Christian sees Christ in everything and everyone else. That is a definition that will never fail you, always demand more of you, and give you no reasons to fight, exclude, or reject anyone. Getting at this idea that Jesus created all things, Richard Rohr tells us that a mature Christianity recognizes Christ in all things, in all people, and in all things, which is what we should be able to do. Christ created all things. All things have been made by him, and that should bring to us a sense of reverence and a sense of love, as well as a sense of stewardship toward all of these things that Jesus Christ created. And this is an incredibly important lesson because once we recognize that Jesus created everything, that means we should be able to recognize the inherent divinity within everybody around us. Every person on this planet is a child of God and was created by divinity. When we think of that, it should really prompt us to treat everybody with love. There's a great quote from Russell M. Nelson. He says this, Any abuse or prejudice towards another because of nationality, race, sexual orientation, gender, educational degrees, culture, or other significant identifiers is offensive to our maker. Why would that be offensive? Because he made us. We all come from heavenly parents. 
We were all created by divinity. We were all created with divinity within us. That means that any abuse or prejudice toward any person for any reason at all, including those things that President Nelson stated, is offensive to God. There aren't many things that our modern day leaders tell us are offensive to God. This is one of them, causing hurt or pain or mistreating any child of God is an offense to our maker because they made all of us. That is an important truth behind this verse, John chapter one, verse three. If he created everything, we should treat everyone with unconditional Christ-like love. But this doesn't just relate to people. It says all things were created by him. All of our spiritual siblings, as well as this earth that we live on and everything contained in it. All things means all things. There was a fantastic talk from Bishop Gerald Cosset in the last General Conference about what this should mean about how we treat our planet. He said, Brothers and sisters, our interactions with the beauties of nature around us can produce some of the most inspiring and delightful experiences in life. The emotions we feel kindle within us a deep sense of gratitude for our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, who created this magnificent earth with its mountains and streams, plants and animals, and our first parents, Adam and Eve. However, the divine gift of the creation does not come without duties and responsibilities. These duties are best described by the concept of stewardship. In gospel terms, the word stewardship designates a sacred, spiritual, or temporal responsibility to take care of something that belongs to God, for which we are accountable. We have a sacred stewardship over these creations that God has given us, for which, according to Bishop Cosé, we will be accountable for. And one more quote on this, it's a short one from President Nelson that Bishop Cosé uses in his talk. Russell M. Nelson said in the April 2000 General Conference, as beneficiaries of the divine creation, what shall we do? We should care for the earth, be wise stewards over it, and preserve it for future generations. There's not a whole lot of other meaning that we can take from those words other than we need to be better about caring for this beautiful earth that our heavenly parents and the creator Jesus Christ have given us. I think that's why John is telling us in verse three, that all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All right, on to verse four. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now remember, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it talked about how John wrote this book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that through him we would have life. Here in verse four, he's telling us that in Jesus is life, and that life is the light of men. I like the way the NLV translation words this verse. It says, the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Now, of course, we're talking about how he created us. We wouldn't exist with our temporal or our physical lives without being created by him. But I think this verse is getting at more than that because it is through him that we not only have physical life as part of the creation process, but absolutely that we can obtain eternal life. Remember, John's purpose is to help us know that Jesus is the Christ and that it is through him that we can have life. 
Whenever we talk about light, I can't help but think of the Savior's teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 gives us a very important teaching about light. And it's interesting because John tells us that it's the life of Jesus that gives us light. And then Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Because of his life, we have a light. And because of that, we should be a light to the world. All right, let's look at verse 5. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Comprehendeth is a bit of an odd word, but if we look up the original Greek word, we see that some other possibly better translations are apprehendeth or taketh. So let's read it again with those words. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness apprehendeth it not, or the darkness taketh it not. This light that is given to us through the life of Jesus Christ cannot be apprehended by darkness. Darkness cannot overtake this light from Jesus Christ. That is an absolute truth, and John is telling us that right here. Whatever that darkness is, wherever it comes from, it cannot apprehend, it cannot take the light. Now we change gears a little bit when we go into verse 6 and we meet John the Baptist for the first time in the Gospel of John. And it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. So it tells us right here the purpose of John the Baptist, not John the Beloved who's writing this Gospel, was to bear witness of the light. Verse 8 says, He, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that verse is simple, but I love it because I think it also tells us what each of us should do. The light is and originates from Jesus Christ. However, we have been sent into this world to bear witness of that light, to help others see it and come to know Him and their heavenly parents. We are here to bear witness of that light, just like John. I love verse 9. It says, That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I always love when I see the words all or every. Remember back in verse 3, we talked about how all things were created by him. Here in verse 9, it's telling us that the true light, with a capital L, referring to Jesus Christ, lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Sometimes it's easy for us to think that the light that we have, the light that we have been given, or the way we have been lit up by that light, is the only true light. But John is telling us right here that every person that has come into the world has that light from Jesus Christ. Every person has that inherent divinity. I'm reminded of a quote from C.S. Lewis. Sorry, I know today is full of quotes. C.S. Lewis said, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere 
mortal. From this quote, C.S. Lewis understood what it meant that the light lighteth every person that cometh into the world. I think often we can forget that. We see people who are different than us or who believe different than we do or live or love differently than we do. We need to remember that the light lighteth every person that cometh into the world. Every person here has inherent divinity. Every person here is able to build a personal relationship with their heavenly parents and with their Savior Jesus Christ. Rather than us telling them how we think they're doing it wrong, we should learn and listen and rejoice together in the light and the life that we have all been given by our heavenly parents through the healer Jesus Christ. I think so many problems in the world could be solved if we would do that. And it starts so small with people that we interact with, talk to every single day. Let's remember in all of those interactions that Jesus Christ has given that light to every man. We shouldn't go around telling people how their light is wrong. We should listen and love and rejoice together in that light that we have all been given. I think that's what our heavenly parents want. Can we share how our understanding of the light has brought us joy and helped us to rejoice even more? Absolutely, but in a way of sharing and not in a way of condemnation or accusation. And on the flip side, we should be just as interested, in fact, I would say even more interested in hearing from others how their understanding of the light has brought them joy. Next, we come to some verses that can cause some serious introspection. Verses 10 and 11. He, Jesus, was made in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. When we read these verses, we shouldn't think, John's right, that happened 2,000 years ago. I'm so glad I'm not doing that. We should really think about whether there are potentially ways that we don't know him, or that we have not received him. When I think about what it means to receive Jesus into our lives, I immediately think of the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, we all remember from that parable that sheep go to heaven and goats go to hell, but what was it about the sheep and the goats that caused that? Let's look at Matthew chapter 25 and remind ourselves. Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Don't worry, we're not going to read the whole thing but I want to talk about some important points. This is how it starts. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit with the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set up the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So he separates the people and he tells the people on his right, the sheep, to come into the kingdom of his Father, the kingdom that's been prepared for them. And then he tells them why, starting in verse 35. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. So he's telling them that they received him. They came to him in a time of need. But as you likely recall from the parable now, 
the righteous respond and say, when did we do these things? When did we see you naked and clothed you? When did we feed you when you were hungry? When did we visit you in prison or as a captive? We don't remember doing any of those things. And the answer that Jesus gives is in verse 40. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. How does the parable of the sheep and the goats help inform us as to what it means to receive Jesus into our lives? I don't think it means that we go to church every week. I don't think it means that we read our scriptures every day. Those things can help. But based on this teaching from Jesus Christ, who is the capital W word, what it means to receive him or even to be, quote, righteous, according to this parable, is to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison, and take in strangers. It means to care for the poor and the oppressed. It means to welcome the outcast. It means to care for the downtrodden. None of those things have anything to do with church. <laughs> we should learn about doing those things in church, and those should provide a community for us to do those things together. But according to Jesus, that is what righteousness is. That is what it means to receive him. So when we read these verses from John, that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not, I wonder if that's what he's referring to, that they didn't do those things that Jesus taught in the parable of the sheep and the goats. That's what Jesus did during his earthly ministry, and clearly that's what he wants us to do with our earthly ministry. That's what it means to know him and to receive him. Continuing on to verse 14, I'm going to read it first without the parentheses. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ dwelt among the people, full of grace and truth. Which means that's exactly how we should be, full of grace and truth. Let's, let's add in the parentheses. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John's telling us that when Jesus Christ was here during his earthly ministry, that's when we beheld his glory. If we look up some additional potential translations for the word glory, what we see is that it could have also been translated as splendor or brightness or even majesty. So John is telling us that when Jesus became a mortal man, that's when we saw his majesty. That's when we saw his splendor or his brightness or his glory. Think about what he did during his mortal ministry. He certainly didn't live as a king. He certainly didn't have riches. What was it that we saw Jesus do while he was in the flesh? We saw him heal the lame and the blind. We saw him dine with sinners. We saw him rebuke accusers. We saw him welcome the outcast. We saw him give mercy to the world. These are the types of acts that show majesty and glory, that bring splendor and brightness to the world. That's not what we typically think of when we think of the words majesty and glory. But John is telling us that we beheld true glory and majesty when Jesus was in the flesh. And those are the things that he did. That is what it means to have true majesty. Now we jump back to John the Baptist for just a minute. In verse 15 it says, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, so these are the words of John the Baptist, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Again, referencing 
the pre-existent Godhood of Jesus, and of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I love that verse, verse 17. John's pointing something out here, saying, we received the law through Moses, and that was a gift. However, Jesus Christ has come with something else, grace and truth. Those came from Jesus Christ. Again, referencing back to Jesus Christ is the capital W word, full of grace and truth, rather than the lowercase word that may have been taught through the law of Moses, that Moses received from God at Mount Sinai. That's the exact word that was used to describe the Ten Commandments that Moses received from God. But Jesus Christ has come, and he is the capital word, full of grace and truth. Now, I don't think we talk about grace enough in our church. In fact, a funny experience, I was recently at a training for early morning seminary teachers in my area, and I made a comment in class about grace, and the instructor literally asked me in front of the entire class if I was a convert from Protestantism, because I'd made a comment about grace. That was a bit of an odd experience at the time, but I think it shows that we really need to talk about grace more. Jesus Christ came, according to this verse, full of grace and truth. Moses came with the law. Jesus came with grace and truth. And one of my favorite verses from all the scriptures about grace is actually from the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23. And we'll just look at the last sentence of this verse. It says, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Now, I think in times past, that last phrase, after all we can do, has been misunderstood to skew our perception of grace. There's a really interesting paper by Dan McClellan, I'll put a link to it down below in the description or in the show notes if you're listening on the podcast, that's a study on this phrase, after all we can do. It was a very common phrase at the time the Book of Mormon was written that essentially means despite all we can do. It means something happened regardless of these other things that were done. It doesn't mean something happened because of these things that were done. So a better way to think of this phrase is despite all we can do. So we'll read it again. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved despite all we can do. The things that we're doing are not earning us salvation. They're hopefully bringing us closer to our heavenly parents and our Savior Jesus Christ so that we can better emulate them and spread that light and love throughout the world, but they are not bringing us salvation. Salvation comes by grace in and through our Savior Jesus Christ. That's why he came to the world. So going back to John chapter 1, when it says the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, what is the truth that Jesus Christ brought. The truth that Jesus Christ brought is that we are not saved by the law. We are saved by grace. That is the truth that Jesus Christ brought. He came full of grace and truth. The truth that we are saved by grace. Now, are there works that we've been commanded to do? Absolutely. And I think those are for our benefit. But those should never be used in a way that would prevent us from loving our neighbor, which was one of the two great commandments that Jesus gave. So while we are saved by grace, we are absolutely commanded to follow God's law and his prophets, which all should hang on the commandment of loving God, which we do by loving 
our neighbors, but we're saved by grace. Have I made my position on that clear enough? I think so. Moving on. Next, we read about a few consecutive days with John the Baptist. The first interaction that we read about with John the Baptist is that some Pharisees and some Sadducees are sent, it says by the Jews, but essentially by the leaders of the Jewish people to inquire of John who he is. It's an interesting interaction. We won't read the entire thing. It starts in verse 19. Essentially, they come and ask John, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Messiah. Or he says in verse 20, I am not the Christ. So he doesn't tell them who he is, but he says, I'm not the anointed one. They ask him, are you Elias? Are you a prophet? And John answers, no. Verse 22, they say, well, who are you? We have to give an answer to the people that sent us. And this is the answer John gives. He said, I, this is verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. What they ask him next is, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elias, why are you baptizing people? John answers, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. I want to spend a minute on that phrase, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose, or in other translations, whose sandal I am not fit to untie. I think John is using that particular action to demonstrate the difference between him and Jesus Christ because at the time, untying of a sandal was a duty reserved for a slave. Clearly, John is still thinking in the cultural norms that he lives in, including slavery, which is uncomfortable for me to even bring up because it's a terrible thing that should have never happened. But John's using it here to, to show the difference that he perceives between him and Jesus Christ. I think it's important to note here that Jesus Christ does not see this difference. John sees it. He views himself as not even worthy to be considered the slave of the Messiah, but that is not how the Messiah, the King of Kings, sees things. Let's remember that Jesus Christ washed the feet of his apostles. He did not believe in any social hierarchy, let alone the concept of slavery. So although John uses this example to point out the difference that he views between he and the Savior Jesus Christ, he does not view us that way. He, in an unimaginable way, views us all simply as children of heavenly parents and treats us all accordingly. And that is what I think he wants desperately for us to do in our lives as well, to recognize that there should be no social hierarchy, that we should simply treat everybody as children of God. So the Pharisees and Sadducees go on their way, and then we read about the next day with John the Baptist. Verse 29 says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So John sees Jesus, and he recognizes him for who he is. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, why does John refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God? If we remember back to the story of the children of Israel in Egypt, they were told that they needed to paint their doorposts with the blood of a lamb in order to be saved from certain destruction. And I think John is trying to tell us the same thing about Jesus. It is through Jesus, the capital L, Lamb of God, that we are saved from certain destruction. And if you want to reference back to that first Passover in your scriptures, I wrote in my margin, 
Exodus chapter 12, verses 13 through 28. That's where it talks about that first Passover. And I think that's why John is referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now, after John sees Jesus and calls him the Lamb of God, he says, This is he of whom I spake. After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, 31 is interesting because it says, I knew him not. So according to the Gospel of John, John the Baptist didn't know who Jesus was before this event. Or at least, if he knew Jesus, wasn't aware that Jesus was the Messiah. But let's keep reading. Verse 32 says, And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. Wait a second. Did we miss the baptism? From the other Gospels, our understanding is that this scene of the Spirit descending like a dove happened after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. The Gospel of John doesn't record the baptism of Jesus at all. It just records this scene of the Spirit descending like a dove. Verse 33 says, And I knew him not, stating that again, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. So John's telling us that whether he knew Jesus or not, I find it hard to believe that he didn't know Jesus, given that Mary and Elizabeth, their mothers, were cousins. But according to the Gospel of John, John the Baptist either didn't know Jesus or didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, until this moment when he saw the Spirit descending like a dove, presumably after John had baptized him, although that's not recorded in this particular gospel. Verse 34, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So he's fulfilling that mission that John the Beloved told us John the Baptist had come to do in verse 8. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. John the Baptist has just done that. Now, in verse 35, we go to the next day. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples. So two of John the Baptist's disciples are standing next to John the Baptist. Jesus walks by in verse 36, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Again, using that title. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned around and saw these two people following him, and he asked an interesting question. What seek ye? These two disciples of John the Baptist answered, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? That might not seem like a great answer to this question, what seek ye? I can think of a lot of other things that I might be seeking, but I wonder if what they're getting at is, they believe John the Baptist that Jesus is the Lamb of God. They want to follow him. They want to learn more from him. So they ask him, where do you live? How can we spend more time with you? How can we learn more from you? Where dwellest thou? And his answer was, come and see. I love that. And they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. I wish that we had a little bit more about what might have been said, what the conversation would have been between these two disciples of John the Baptist and Jesus at that time. We don't know. Verse 40 does tell us, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. In verse 41, Andrew goes and finds his brother, Simon Peter, and tells him that he has found the Messiah, that he has found the Christ. In verse 42, it says that Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, son of Jonah. 
Thou shalt be called Cyphus, which is by interpretation a stone or rock. And this is why we call him Peter the Rock. So that's it for that day. And then now in verse 43, it says, The day following, Jesus went forth to Galilee and found Philip and said unto Philip, Follow me. Interesting that these first two disciples followed Jesus after John the Baptist had pointed Jesus out as the Lamb of God. One of those disciples goes to find his brother Simon, and then Simon comes to follow Jesus. But for Philip, it says that Jesus went into Galilee to find him. And then in verse 45, it says that Philip didn't do that alone. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So just like Andrew went to find Simon, Philip goes to find Nathanael and tells him, We have found the Messiah. We have found he who fulfills the prophecies from the Hebrew Bible. We have found the Christ. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel has a very interesting response. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? I wonder if Nathaniel regrets having those words recorded, but I'm glad that they are because there is such a wonderful and powerful lesson here. Nazareth was just this small little village almost. It wasn't a big town. It wasn't a place of notoriety. And so Nathaniel's question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? If the Messiah is coming, would he really come out of this tiny little village that nobody really cares about? Philip's answer is, come and see. That's the perfect answer. I think the lesson here is, Jesus will often come to us in ways that we don't expect, ways that we maybe don't even understand. Think back to the parable of the sheep and the goats that we already talked about. The way that Jesus came unto those people was in the form of somebody who was naked, who needed clothing, somebody who was hungry, that needed to be fed, somebody who needed to be taken in, somebody in prison who needed to be visited. Jesus comes to each of us in ways that we might not expect. And it is in showing love and mercy in all situations that we accept him. Thankfully, Nathanael listened. Verse 47 says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael says, How do you know me? And Jesus says, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Now, we don't know what was going on under this fig tree, but whatever it was, Jesus saw Nathanael before he had even come to meet Jesus. We don't know if that was just a place where Nathanael sat. Maybe that was something really difficult. Maybe it was something really amazing that happened to Nathanael under that fig tree. But for whatever reason, when Jesus told Nathanael, before you came to me, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathanael answers, Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. That response makes me think that there must have been something significant going on under the fig tree whether it was a great trial or some sort of a great triumph, or maybe Nathaniel was literally praying about the Messiah and Jesus says, I saw you. We don't know, and I don't mean to speculate, but whatever was happening under that fig tree that Jesus says he saw, when Jesus says that to Nathaniel, Nathaniel immediately knows that this is the Son of God, even though Jesus was from Nazareth. And Nathaniel wondered whether any good thing could come out of Nazareth. I love the thought that this exchange brings to mind, and that is that Jesus sees us. 
whether it's in the ordinary mundane days or whether it's great trials or great triumphs, Jesus sees us and is with us. In fact, he promised his apostles that he would be with them always. And Nathanael received a big testament of that right here in this exchange. Jesus saw him under the fig tree. And because of that, Nathanael knew that Jesus was the Messiah. What Jesus says to Nathanael next is interesting. He says, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. He tells Nathanael, You haven't seen anything yet. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus will come to us in ways that we don't expect. He will see us and be with us in times where we may have felt alone. And it is by recognizing when Jesus comes into our life that we will see incredible miracles. Those are some of the beautiful truths that I have found in this first chapter of the Gospel of John. I would love to know if there are others that you have found, either down in the comments below or hit me up on Instagram at Latter-day Stonecatcher. Remember, God loves you, I love you, catch stones, don't throw them. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, I would really appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify. If you're enjoying these podcasts, that's one of the best things you can do to help it spread to other people. And I would really appreciate it. Thank you for listening.